Unearthing Paranormalcy is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of Unearthing Paranormalcy, the podcast that digs into the paranormal and tries to find normalcy in the topic. I'm Amy. I'm Dave. And I'm Chad. Hi, Chad. Hi, Dave. Hello. Hi, Amy. It's yet another night to record another episode. It is. And just when you thought it was safe to go into the woods, we bring you Missing 411. Part I don't even know what part we're on anymore. (laughs) I think, shoot, 9 or 10, maybe 11. Something like that. We haven't even made a chip. And how many cases? Of my six books, there's even a whole book we haven't even cracked yet. Oh, my goodness. So. And then there's like six or seven books that you don't have yet. Yeah, because he keeps adding to it. And Mm -hmm. I'm a broke woman (laughs) and I can't afford to just keep buying books. I'm a broke ass bitch. (laughs) But it looks like there's a movie coming out. There's a trailer on his website. A movie. Which is missing-411.com. But before we get started in this episode, let's go ahead and hear a promo from one of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network shows. Yay! Hi, I'm Frater Yarmarud. And I'm Zarina. And we'd like to introduce you to Administrism. What is Administrism? As an occultist, for years I felt the universe directing me towards a practice that was ecologically based with a foundation laid out by cultures untouched by the influence of what's become modern Western society. With labels like shamanism and neo-shamanism carrying too much uncomfortable post-colonial baggage, I've decided to take my own approach. Join Yara and me as we research and develop a magical system where we recognize our place in nature with all the life that surrounds us. We want to share with you our journey into a paradigm that incorporates ritual and ecology, anthropology and metaphysics, biology, and the occult. Using ethically sourced material, historical accounts, ethnographic records, and our own personal experience, we want to share our discoveries as we watch administrism grow in an organic blend of traditional spirituality, modern science, and a dash of homesteading, without all the connotations associated with labels like shamanism. We hope that by listening to how administrism sprouts in us, it will plant its seeds into your own practice. This way, you can find your own balance between magic and nature. Because the world needs room for both. And don't forget, 
You can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I think every episode they come out with blows my freaking mind. <laughs> my mind is easily blown, so I could say that about a lot, but that's a good podcast, so. Yeah. <laughs> I highly recommend it. Speaking of blowing minds. Whoa. Minds. I said minds. Oh, I thought you said mimes. Gotta go blow some mimes. <laughs> it's a really quiet adventure. Um, but they have so much personality. <laughs> it's always my goal to make them squeak. No. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> it's like the, the British guards that aren't supposed to ma- move or anything. And people, like us crazy Americans, always go up there and try to, like, bloop, 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 make them laugh. How's that go? Bloop, 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 bloop. One more time. Oh, bloop, 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 bloop. Again? No. Damn, I was going to see how long I can go. Oh, bloop, 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 bloop. All right. How we're going to do it this, well, I guess, let's do the intro first. Yeah. So, Missing 411, if you haven't listened to our extensive library of Missing 411 cases, or ever heard of this before. Or ever heard of The Missing 411. It started out as a book series written and self-published by David Pilates. He was a former police officer who spent his time researching Bigfoot and examining strange cases of disappearances. He started to discover that there was a correlation between disappearances and national parks. And when he started to dig deeper into this, he started to discover that the national parks don't keep records of those who are missing. Nor do they really even seem to care. Yeah, they tend to don't search for very long. They might put a whole lot of search into it in the first like week, and then it just completely disappears. Nobody's looking anymore. Yeah. Um, the series has expanded more than 10 books. There's two documentaries out there, and then, like I said, there's a movie coming out. You can order all the books through his website, which is missing dash four one one dot com dot com. You can only purchase them through his website. Uh, you, well, not true. You can order them on Amazon, but they're like a hundred bucks on Amazon. Where if you order them through his website, it's more like thirty bucks. Yeah. Like I said earlier, I have six of the books, and my collection will continue to grow as I purchase more. But I have missing four one one Eastern United States missing four one one. Western United States and Canada, Missing 411 North America and Beyond, Missing 411 Off the Grid, Missing 411 Sobering Coincidence, and Missing 411 The Devil is in the Details. And there are many more. There's one for Montana and Canada. There's one about just law enforcement that goes missing. There's one that is about hunters. There's one about, um, let's see... Now, the sobering coincidences one is is mostly college students that go missing. That kind of butts up against another popular theory, and that's the smiley face killers. And there are many of the missing 411 cases that other than the fact that they don't have a smiley face that is talked about in there, they are very similar to the smiley face murder theory as well. Yeah. Um, 
it's just a very interesting coincidence. Now, one of the main things that you will notice with the cases in these books is they had to fit a very precise category. It was very precise criteria. criteria. Yeah, there we go. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for to be admitted into the books. First of all, the victims either have a really high intelligence or they have some kind of a disability. Um, canines are often involved, whether it be that the dog goes missing with a person or the dogs are used in tracking and they never find a scent. They are f- often found in near re- reeks. <laughs> they're, off- <laughs> they're often found near creeks, rivers, and other waterways. In national parks, there are 59 geological clusters in North America that usually contain boulder fields and mountains. Sounds like the worst cereal ever. <laughs> I'm here to make <laughs> I'm, I'm here to make jokes about it because some of this stuff gets pretty dark, and humor is a good way to kind of cope with that. Isn't that right? That is correct. Berries usually play for some kind of part in it whether they were out hunting berries or they ingested berries while they were hiking or while they were missing dave you have a great theory on this i do i i covered on every episode um so i'll kind of keep it brief but it's pretty much huckleberries and belladonna berries both the plants and the berries look very similar when they're ripe now if you've heard of belladonna berries you know that they're very poisonous but when they're ripe they still have they're still poisonous, but they won't like make you go unconscious or keep, put you into like convulsions or kill you. Instead, it'll it'll do things like disorientate you or put you in a, a hallucinatory state. And a lot of people that have come back or been found with missing four one one after consuming berries is that's some of the symptoms they describe. Mm-hmm. How they lot, like lost their direction sense or started seeing things that weren't there, started seeing shadows or people or Yeah. Hearing things that didn't weren't there. Yeah, yeah. Auditory hallucinations as well. And then that's all very common with Belladonna poisoning. Another criteria would be that the missing, they cannot remember the incident if they are found conscious or found alive. Because most of them are found semi-conscious or unconscious um, or deceased. They're missing clothing, especially shoes. Most disappearances happen in the afternoon. 4 p.m. seems to be a very common time for it to happen. Yeah. They are often found in previously searched locations. Um, and weather is oft, often associated with the disappearance, whether that the weather is what caused the disappearance or, you know, a freak snowstorm moves in during the search that has to cancel the search. Now, when she says previously searched locations, it's like completely bonkers stuff. It'll be like they set up the camp to carry out the search and rescue. And then from the camp, they start making like either their cloverleaf pattern or their zigzag pattern, whatever they're going to do. And then a few days will go by, and then all of a sudden they'll find them like somewhere in the camp. Yeah, <laughs> or very like ten feet outside of the camp. Very yeah, close. like like under a pine tree, like twenty feet away from where they've been set up for like three days. Yeah, it, uh, like ridiculously close to where they were searching or 
Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. They are also subcategories of hunters, joggers, and hikers, people who have a lot of experience in these areas that you wouldn't think of as going missing or being able to survive going missing. Also, children, um, when they are found, they are often in places that they did not expect to find them. And, and that, I mean, instead of being 10 feet away from camp, they may be 3,000 feet up the side of a mountain, barefoot with no clothes. It's very strange things like that. Or in the middle of a swamp, hugging a tree. But they're like, but they're dry and clean. Yeah. And like not muddy or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very odd. So it's a big list of criteria. So you got to wonder how many people go missing that don't fit this criteria. Yeah. Because, I mean, there's thousands and thousands of, I I wouldn't be surprised if it's pushing up to 10,000 over just the last century. Well, I know every time I hear a missing person like on the news or something like that, that disappears in, in or around one of these national parks, I'm always like, ooh, I wonder if David Pilates is getting ready to start his research on this one. You know, now a lot of them have been found here lately. Unfortunately, a lot of them are found deceased, but, and most of them it is explained why. You know, I'm thinking like Gabby Petito or some of those cases, but. Or there was, um, that boy that went missing out from his front yard in, I think, Kentucky. And was found like 50 feet from the house. Yeah, 50 feet like from the back gate. Instead of bear, kept him warm. Yeah. I mean, it was a thick patch of woods behind there, but yeah. you wouldn't think it would be that thick where people couldn't go through it over the course of a day or two. But yeah, yeah, you described how like a bear kept him warm over overnight, and, and that's not an uncommon yeah. thing that you hear from these kids that bears saved them, or hairy men, or yeah. you know, yeah. like wild men. Yeah. It's interesting. All right, so we're gonna do it again this way, this time, like we did last time. Uh, we are going to play bibliomancy okay. with the books. The books here. I have a D6. I have six books. It'll be one, two, three, four, five, six. Super complicated, right? Starting with one on the top, six is on the bottom. Our first book is five. Oh, I have not cracked this book open. Oh, what is this one? A sobering coincidence. Oh, this is the one I was talking about that's mostly full of college students that go missing all right give me a good one i want somebody possibly alive if any of these are alive i don't know and there. stop luckily we have adults those are always a little easier to read i don't know the older i get and the younger these these kids these seem adults to be get. even when they're in their 20s and stuff i'm like oh man i almost got a kid college age All right, this is the story of Max Walker. Max went missing on July 25th, 2006 at 1.30 a.m. He disappeared at the age of 26 years old. This is one of the rare cases where the victim was a war veteran 
This means that this person had more maturity and worldly experience compared to some of the younger college men. Max Walter was a 1998 graduate of Grand Island High School in Grand Island, Nebraska. He briefly attended the University of Nebraska at Lincoln until he deployed to Iraq. He was part of the U.S. Reserve's 308th Transportation Group based in Lincoln. Max came back and enrolled in St. Ambrosia University as an economic and finance major, where he earned earned honors status. He enjoyed playing golf and music and was a member of the Veterans of Foreign Wars. In December of 2005, Max obtained an internship with a Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance and Financial Representative. Intern on July 24, 2006. He was in Milwaukee for a conference with his company. On July 24, Max went out after the conference with work associates for a night along the Riverwalk area in Milwaukee. This is a series of bars and restaurants scattered along the Milwaukee River. At approximately 1.30 a.m., Max left the Buckhead Saloon at 144th North Old World's 3rd Street. The saloon sits along the river. CCTV footage shows that Max left alone when Max's roommate realized that his bed in his hotel had not been slept in. By noon that day, the police were called and he was reported as a missing person. There was a search for Max by police and friends. Nothing of value was found. On July 27, 2006, a construction crew near the Milwaukee River saw something unusual in the water. The police were called and Max's body was recovered. The coroner stated that there were no outward signs of violence on the body. One report indicated that the probable drowning, but there was no official confirmation statements from the medical examiner that we could locate and no release of his blood alcohol level. So what time of year was this? July. So even if he'd fallen in the water, I mean, it isn't like it's freezing temperatures. Yeah. And I mean... How drunk was he? Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're at a public place like a bar and you're like stammering around drunk... You know, they they usually take care of you. They were like, the bartender can be, like, charged. Yeah. Well, and he's with a group of friends. I mean, they don't tend to over-serve you at a bar because of incidences like this. And that one really sounds familiar to the, or similar to the smiley face killer theory. All right. Yeah. This all right here? Yeah. This, it's, this yeah, it sounds to me like... There's probably some foul play involved in this. Well, the fact that that was in Wisconsin, if you remember when we did our, um, we did a Patreon episode on the smiley face killers. Yeah. Or killer. Or killers. Whatever you want to call it. Wisconsin was probably one of the heaviest, heaviest, most, yeah. Wisconsin was the most saturated area. Yeah. of disappearances. And that's kind of one of the things we came to was maybe this, whatever, if this is a gang, maybe this gang originated in Wisconsin. Sure. Um, now, this would have been years prior to this, but this is where, like, 
Jeffrey Dahmer would pick up his victims and stuff was in Milwaukee. There's been quite a few serial killers from Wisconsin. I don't know if it would have been the same bar, but or even the or even the same area along the river or not. Well, you got Dahmer and Gacy. That was Chicago. Okay, nearby, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. Just interesting. Who's going next? Two. Western United States and Canada. William Marshall Sisko Jr. Missing. June 12, 1994. Happy Valley, Arizona. Age of disappearance, 32. 6'1", 165 pounds. William Sisko and his prospecting friends were in a remote area near Happy Valley, and adjacent to the Saguaro National Park. On the evening of June 12, 1994, William said he wanted to leave. His friends said they did not. William decided to leave the prospecting site alone and was never seen again. Law enforcement investigators believe that William met with foul play or died of exposure in the desert. His body has never been found. Oh, uh. I'll do another one, too. That's really short. Donald Kenneth Schellenberger. Missing. July 3rd, 94. Mount Lemmon, Tucson, Arizona. Age of disappearance, 35. 5'11", 160 pounds. Donald Schellenberger was making arrangements to meet a friend on Mount Lemmon in the northeast section of Tucson, Arizona. They were going to meet and hike the mountain. Donald was never seen again. And details about this case are few. I wonder how close those two areas are. Maybe. Pretty close. I don't know. That's one thing about these books, too. You have some cases that have pages and pages. And then you've got some that are just a paragraph. There's no information that can be found on them. That's why, I mean, that's kind of why it's important that Pilates is doing what he's doing. Because at least some of these cases... They're forgotten. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, they're in, what, 49 clusters? I think I said 59. Or Yeah, something like that. And Yeah. So I'm always curious as to which towns and which states are part of what clusters. They're just all over. One, almost, I think a few of these map books now have maps of the clusters. Yeah. Yeah, there's a big cluster down there in Arizona. Right around Tucson. Probably. Right. I don't know. There's a couple of them. There's. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I got two as well. Well, then you're going to be coming from Western United States and Canada. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, these. Okay. Jonathan Betts. Missing October 20th, 2006, Sanguero National Park, Arizona. Age of disappearance, 32. 5 foot 10, 190 pounds. He sounds like the same age and build as those other two. Mm-hmm. It appears Jonathan Betts drove his Mazda protege to Sanguero National Park. According to the receipt found in his vehicle, Jonathan paid upon entering. The stamp shows he arrived at 4 p.m., 
After a three-day search of the park, searchers eventually found his vehicle. The, par- the car was parked at the Loma Verde Loop Trail, slightly off the main roads. Jonathan was an avid hiker. His parents are from the East Coast, and he was a student at Pima Community College. Law enforcement states that there were no indications of foul play. An extensive search of the park and his residence failed to uncover any evidence of his location. Jonathan's body has never been found. Remind me to never go to that area of Arizona. (laughs) I'm in that age and the height. Now I'm 100 pounds heavier than all of them. (laughs) but (laughs) But it was also... I think 12 years after the... Because the other ones were in 94, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just like months apart. So... Sounds kind of different in that aspect. But yeah, I mean, the synchronicities really pile up when you start looking at these. Yeah. They really do. And I'm just I'm just good at looking at patterns and probably finding them where they don't exist (laughs) you know which you know sometimes is good because sometimes it needs a fresh set of eyes and a different pattern to follow some of these cases too yeah that's true all right next same book i think this might be a loaded die i'm thinking so too remember not to remind me not to use that when it comes to rolling my hit points (laughs) oh yeah that's true (laughs) Shoot, I was playing second edition one time and we had a level six cleric that had four hit points. You're like, how the hell did that happen? Well, first off, he had a con modifier of minus one. (laughs) And second, he kept rolling ones and twos for his hit points. When he was level one, like making his character, he was like, let's see. Oh, one minus one. I am already dead. <laughs> I was like, I'll give you a re-roll on that one because we're not redoing all this. Because back then it would take hours to put together a character. All right. We have Bruce Creeman. He went missing July 13th, 1960. In Buckhorn Flats, Angeles National Park, Cal- or in Angeles National Forest, California. He was seven at the time of his disappearance. He was four foot five inches and 65 pounds. Oh, it's just a little, little kid, huh? In the summer of 1960, Bruce Kremlin attended, attended a YMCA camp in the Angeles National Forest with 80 other children. Bruce was with two other boys on the trail a half mile from camp when he was momentarily left alone and disappeared. Search parties scoured the Buckhorn Flats area and interviewed many of the children at the camp. No leads were developed. The formal search lasted 11 days, but it went on informally for weeks. An APO article dated July 14, 1961, stated the following. We have sent crews back for many times, Fortane said, but it's like the un- it's like the other unsolved cases of in the forest. The reference was Brenda Howell and Donnie Baker, youngsters who rode a bicycle into forest in August that were never returned. And Tommy Bowman, who disappeared while hiking with his father a year later. The forest and mountainous the forest, a mountainous and heavily wooded area, covers six hundred and ninety one thousand fifty two mi- acres. 
the case involving Baker and Howell was resolved through an arrest of a suspect in their murder. Bruce Cremans and Tommy Bowman's cases were never resolved. The location of Bruce's disappearance is approximately 50 miles south of where Cecilia Mitchell disappeared. So apparently there's a lot of kids going missing in this area. One person was arrested. I'm going to say that there might have been some kind of a uh, serial killer in that neck of the woods. Yeah, it had been in the... Early 60s? Yeah. Late 50s, early 60s? Four. We're going off the grid. Off the grid. Glenn Pierce. Missing. October 18th, 1940. At noon. In Eva, Oklahoma. Age of disappearance? Four years. Distance traveled. Eva, Oklahoma is located on the panhandle at the far northwestern portion of the state. There is almost nobody missing in the west-central portion of the state. It's only when you get to the far northwest that you get to this case. The reason this disappearance is in this book is that the distance traveled and the amount of time the child was missing baffles the mind. Mr. and Mrs. Kirby Pierce owned a homestead 24 miles northwest of Ava, at noon on October 18, 1940, the Pierce's four-year-old son vanished with his dog. This was a very rural area without vehicular traffic. The idea that someone drove by and abducted Glenn Pierce was not part of the equation. People who have read Missing 411, Eastern United States, probably had a bell ringing in their head after the previous paragraph. I've documented several cases where small kids vanish from the rural farms and ranches with their dogs. Sometimes the dogs are found, and sometimes the kids were located. An October 1940 article in the Amarillo Daily News had details on the search effort. Neighbors searched all afternoon for the boy. And at nightfall, more than 500 men from Guyman, Goodwill, Texoma, and Ava joined the search. The boy was found unharmed by Luke's, Luke Messenger at midnight in a shack 12 miles west of the home. The headline appeared with a October 24, 1940 article in the Boise City News. Last boy wanders 12 miles from home. There were multiple points of confirmation that Glenn Pierce had somehow managed to travel 12 miles in 12 hours. Is this believable? After Glenn was found, he said he had seen snakes and chased cows, and then he had gone to sleep, meaning he traveled faster than one mile per hour. He said he had slept next to his dog. Robert Coyster's book, Last Person Behavior, is used by many search and rescue teams to set a grid pattern for search operations. His book states that 95% of all children, 4 to 6 years of age, will be found on flat terrain in under 4.1 miles. What about the other 5%? How far will they be? Glint was found in good condition. We've covered that one, actually. We have done that one before. But what's interesting about that one is we didn't do it before. We got the beaver triangle up there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
We hadn't covered the beaver triangle it's yet. It's the beaver. I think it was the beaver. <laughs> it's always the beaver's fault. <clears throat> Watch out for the beaver. Well, I'm glad he was, he was He's found, found safe. 12 miles. That's a long way to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's see. He'd be in his 90s now. If he was still alive. Yeah, he disappeared disappeared in 1940 at four years old. Mm-hmm. So yeah, almost 90. Six years older than our pa. Our pa would be 80, so he'd be 96 or 86. Yeah. Actually, be 81, which would make that guy 87. Three. We haven't got any threes yet. North America and, and beyond. Beyond. Way beyond. To infinity and beyond. All right. This is Jimmy Rambone Jr. Missing September 3rd, 2003, 3 p.m. Nunavik, Quebec. Or I think QC, yeah, Quebec. Because it wouldn't be Queen something. That's in Australia. All right. Jimmy. Oh. Age and disappearance, 51 years. Uh, He was disabled. He was an epileptic. Jimmy Rambone lived with his girlfriend, Pam Russo, on his farm in Foster, Rhode Island. Jimmy had a variety of small animals that he cared for daily. Jimmy loved the outdoors and was a lifetime hunter. His wish was to travel to the far reaches of northern Canada and pursue the hunt of a lifetime for caribou. In early September 2003, Jimmy booked a trip with Canada Adventures to travel to east of in Nunavik as for an unguided caribou hunt. It's a lot of U's and J's. Uh, K-U-U-J-J-U-A-Q. Our Canadian listeners can fill us in. Which is east of K-U-U-J-J-U-U-A-R-A-A-P-I-K. And he was staying at a location called Camp Sardine near the Canapesca River. And he was transported to the site in a beaver aircraft. Beaver. That must have been some cool aircraft. <laughs> like a beaver, like pilot goggles. He's like, get in. <laughs> like, holy shit. There were a total of four hunters in the group at the camp. Jimmy was one of 3,500 hunters that annually come to Nunavik to hunt. This special eight-day hunt trip cost Jimmy $2,900. Pam was going to stay at the farm and ensure the animals stayed healthy while Jimmy took the once-in-a-lifetime trip. Jimmy wanted to hunt alone, and this wasn't unusual. He had decades of hunting experience. He knew what he was doing, and he was highly proficient with his rifle. Jimmy was also an epileptic. On September 3, 2003, the hunters rose early and departed their camp. It wasn't long after they left that they heard two shots that could have only come from Jimmy. The group felt that Jimmy must have quickly got a caribou. The hunters came back to their cabin near lunchtime 
and Jimmy didn't arrive. The group waited till near 2 p.m. and then started to search for the 51-year-old hunter. At approximately 3 p.m., the sense of urgency started to rise as they found the location where Jimmy had apparently killed a caribou. The scene of the shooting was almost surreal. Jimmy's bright orange hunting vest was hanging 33 from the carcass, along with his camera. Jimmy and his rifle were gone. <clears throat> on September 4th, more personnel arrived at the cabin and started to formulate a plan for the search for Jimmy. The Beaver aircraft went into the air and started to look for the missing hunter. It wouldn't be easy. Jimmy had been wearing a camouflage coat under his orange vest. It would make finding him difficult, even for the eagerest of beavers. Searchers went back to the scene where the vest had been and started to search the area for clues. There was snow on the ground, but rescuers could not find footprints leaving the area. Very unusual. Jean-Pierre Bardot was the manager for Canada Adventures and was on the scene soon after the report came in. A September 19, 2003 article in the Nunatsayak News had the following update on the search for Jimmy. Quote, soon the KF or soon the KPRF and the SQ and especially trained dog became involved in the search for the missing hunter. They scouted the terrain with the dog and surveyed low-lying trees, rocks and lakes by helicopter. There was no scent. The dog almost got lost, said Bardo. Later in the same article, I fear something tragic happened to him the first day, said Bardo. Unquote. Even even the dog got lost. That's that's interesting. Um A September two thousand seven article in Outdoor Life magazine chronicled the disappearance of Jimmy. One portion of the article stated quote he simply disappeared from the face of the earth, or so it seems, unquote. The article included the following statement by Pam Rizzo. Something's just not right. You don't just vanish, unquote. I did not speak with Pam by, vo- by phone. Uh, not me. This would be uh, <laughs> David Pilates. She explained that she received donations and hired a private investigator to attempt to determine what happened to Jimmy. It was quite it was quite a different life this far north. Weather changes quickly, and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police do not have the resources in this region that they would have had in a more populated province. The manager of Camp Sardine, Mr. Bardot, stated that they have only had one other incident where the group was lost for 24 hours. Once they put the beaver aircraft into the sky, the hunters came into a clearing and they were rescued. The camp had never had an incident like Jimmy's. Rescuers did tell Pam that there were predators in this region occasionally. The most vicious and dangerous animals are polar bears and wolves. They explained that these animals might possibly attack a human, but they'd also eat the carcass of the caribou, and they wouldn't take the rifle 
which was never found. There was never a location found that could be attributed to an attack on a human. Plus, there'd be a bunch of tracks and and whatnot. All right, the summary. Several elements of Jimmy's disappearance meet the criteria for missing people we would study. Jimmy was an epileptic. Some rescuers believe that it was possible that Jimmy had a seizure, became disorientated, and subsequently got lost and died. Pam did state that Jimmy was sometimes disorientated after a seizure, but only for 10 or 15 minutes. He was wearing very bright clothing, which was left behind. Leaving the camera at the seams seems like a very odd element. I have stated in other books that there does not seem to be an inordinate amount of photographers that vanish. Bloodhounds brought to the seam seem disorientated or unable to work, a very consistent element in many disappearances. The area where Jimmy disappeared is one of the marshiest areas you can find in North America. This region is probably 35% water and 65% land. Jimmy was very close to a river and a lake when the incident occurred. Many people who are chronicled in the missing 411 books seem to shed clothing for some reason. The idea that Jimmy's vest was hanging in a tree when he knew there were hunters in the area seems contrary to his hunter safety training. Searchers never did find a location where there were indications of an animal attack. They never found any confirmed tracks of Jimmy's. It's hard to reconcile in my mind how rescuers couldn't find tracks when there was snow on the ground. In a region where there is limited wildlife and virtually no human traffic, it's very hard to understand how a search-trained canine cannot find a scent. This is a very baffling case that may never be resolved. Jimmy has never been found. Now, now I will say that, like, we don't really know a lot about it here, and I didn't know this till somebody from up north pointed it out to me, but there's probably like 30 different kinds of snow. And there is snow that's that's much like sand where it doesn't leave any tracks. You just see these little, like, like walking, uh, it'd be like walking through um, any sandy region where there's no moisture. You might see a little divot, but... But it doesn't actually retain that footprint. No, no. Whereas if you were walking like on the beach near the water, it might leave a little footprint. Well, and I, I think too about sometimes when we <laughs> we don't get snow a whole lot and we don't get lot a lot of snow. But there have been times that we have had enough snowfall fast enough that any sign that our dogs had been outside is completely covered up within an hour. Yeah. So. But I don't think it's anything about actively snowing. But it's also snowed here, and it's been like almost like a layer of ice where you could just walk across it like yeah. it was nothing. And it wouldn't even. Leave a dent in the snow because it, it was yeah, ice. Yeah. It wouldn't even impact into it. And I wonder if maybe he fell into the lake. Or. My thought with him, the rifle being gone, but the vest being hung up, is maybe he heard something near camp and was going to check it out. And then 
something happened to him from there. Yeah. Yeah. It just doesn't make no sense why he'd take off his bright orange vest, though. Well, if he's got the carcass there at camp, he's getting ready to clean the carcass. And like I said, he hears something. Yeah, but he still shouldn't have taken the best off. He shouldn't have, no. But yeah, the only good thing is if he had gotten wet or something and yeah. had taken the vest off to dry hanging it in a tree. Oh, uh, yeah. Now, could it be possible that, because, I mean, they said that there's like 3,000 other hunters here. Could it be possible that some other hunters accidentally shot him and were like, fuck. Oh, totally then, possible, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then, like, covered it up and, like, Very buried totally. him somewhere. Yeah. Probably most likely case I if there's that many the hunters. Best stuff to make it seem like, oh, he didn't have it on in case he was found. In case and they found out and they're like, oh, we didn't see a vest, so we shot. Yeah. Yeah. Makes 100% sense that that could be it. And then they just throw him over the lake. Yeah. And he falls through the ice or... Because the ground would probably be too frozen to bury, and then yeah, I mean, with all those people around, cut a little hole out like you're you, fishing, and just drop the body down in there. Yeah, you wouldn't want to hang out with the body very long. Yeah, I mean, they could have even buried it in the snow, and then. I mean, oh yeah, it depends how long it took it. To, depends how long it took it the snow to melt, on when the body would have been found if they were searching for it. So. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I think in Quebec, it's pretty much like the whole winter season, there's snow on the ground. I honestly couldn't tell you anything about Canada, but other than their flag is red and white and has a maple leaf on it. <laughs> and Robin Sparkles is from there. <laughs> from Quebec? Uh, from from Canada. Oh. Let's it's go a big place. to the mall. All right. I mean, it's it's a huge place, and I got six, six, which is devils in the detail. And these are interesting because these happen at places where it's like Devil's Point or Devil's Knot or Devil's Mountain or. And there's some overlap on that, and then like the ideas of like cursed places and the devil went down to Georgia looking for sold steel. Trying to find one we haven't. Y'all done. ever heard the song where the devil goes to Jamaica because he was looking to score some weed? <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. And then it gets to the part where like they do the solo. It's just all them coughing. <laughs> Like, <laughs> so like the melody, it's, it's brilliant. All right. We have Geraldine Legay. Largay. Sorry. She went missing on July 23rd, 2013. That's my second birthday. <laughs> um, from Sugarloaf. Mountain Appalachian Trail. She was 66 years old. George and Geraldine Largy were from Brenttown, Tennessee. The pair had been married for 32 years. Geraldine was a retired nurse and extremely experienced hiker who had always wanted to trek the Appalachian Trail. George would be the supportive cast 
and ensure that Geraldine had the proper food and supplies. He would meet her at certain points along the hike and he'd drive their car. Geraldine carried a cell phone and would keep George updated on her progress. The hike started April in West Virginia. She was traveling north with the eventual goal of reaching Baxter Park in Mount Catahind in Maine. Or Catahidden, Catahidden in Maine. The trip would be would have been 1150 miles. Geraldine had traveled 950 miles and was continually met with her and con- and had continually met with her husband along the way. When she was last seen in Maine on July 22nd, 2013, she sent George a text message stating that she was 8 miles from her next stop where they would meet. She would never arrive. Mm. George called the Maine warden service on July 24th and reported his wife missing. On October 22nd, 2013, an article in the Kennebec Journal had this information about the day Geraldine was last seen on the trail, July 22nd. It rained heavily that day. Largue 66 of Tennessee was last seen. The warden service put canines, airplanes, and ground crews into the area where Geraldine was last known was last known to be. A 4.2 square mile area near Lone Mountain and Mount Abram were covered extensively by hundreds of searchers. The three-week rescue efforts found absolutely nothing. Cadaver dogs were brought into the area near the end of the search, and they also found nothing. On August 16th, 2013, an article in the Morning Sentinel reported the feelings of the searchers. Lieutenant Kevin Adams of Maine Warden Service called the search for Laguerre mystifying, saying almost all hikers who disappear from the trail are found within a day. Several attempts to pin Geraldine's cell phone show that the phone was not functioning, and she was never found. Summary, the Appalachian Trail has been associated with many disappearances and strange cases over the years. Oh, yeah, it has. I have written about many of these incidents in books past. Geraldine was not a rookie to hiking. She knew the hazards and the trail route very well. This is not the case of somebody getting casually lost. If she were disoriented, she would have responded to to hundreds of searchers in the area. If her body was anywhere within the region she was thought to be, canine and cadaver dogs would have picked up her scent. I believe that the onset of heavy rains and her subsequent disappearance are too coincidental to ignore and fit a pattern of incidental inclement weather and missing people I have chronicled. It should be stated that Geraldine went missing on July 23rd, 2013. And Jerry Dernan went missing on Hardware Ranch, Utah on July 24th, 2013. I've also stated many times that there's a hopscotch effect in these cases. A case will occur in one area of the United States and then one and the next one in another area in, on the continent. Yeah, he's starting to see patterns like that too. Yeah. Different patterns and things. Six. Devils in the detail. Six. Six, six. Have you Number ever wondered of the beast. why on a D6 they have to draw the underline so that you know that it's a six? Because there's one standard font for all these dice. (laughs) 
I don't know. Do you know? Jeff Christensen. Missing. July 29th, 2005. RMNP, Colorado. Age of disappearance, 31 years. That's your first birthday, Amy. What was the date? 29th. Oh, I thought you said July 19th. <laughs> Apparently I have a third birthday yeah, now. <laughs> I thought you said the 19th. Just keep screwing it up. I'll have the entire month of July. You already claim it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> there have been few unusual disappearances of National Park Rangers. This classifies as being near the top. The incidents happened near the 13,000 foot elevation and in an area where the, there is little to no ground cover with lots of rocks and several small bodies of water. If you can mold the national profile of what you'd want in a National Park Service Ranger, you'd have Jeff Christensen. During the off-season for the last seven years, Jeff was an emergency medical technician and ski patrolman in Winter Park. The blonde-haired 31-year-old physical specimen was residing in Fraser, Colorado. When he reported to work at the Rocky Mountain National Park on the morning, er, in the morning hours of July 29, 2005, the Minnesota native loved the outdoors and enjoyed the freedom of hiking, patrolling, hiking and patrolling the backcountry. On this day, he was going out alone on patrol, the Lawn Lake Trailhead. He would be armed with a service pistol and would have a walkie-talkie. At approximately 1.30 p.m., a group of visitors were near the summit of Mount Shakita and reported talking with Jeff. The conversation was short, and they moved on. This was the last time anyone saw the ranger alive. The National Park Service obviously wasn't keeping track of their employees very well. The first time anyone realized that something might be wrong with Jeff was when he didn't report to work the following morning. It's apparent that there was nobody checking checking at the end of the day that all the backcountry rangers made it in safely. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Once they realized he didn't check in for work, they contacted his residence and realized he never made it home. Later in the day, on July 30th, the Park Service finally realized that one of their its cherished rangers was lost somewhere in the backcountry. So they don't keep any kind of records or files for people that go missing. They don't and even that, check up and, on their own rangers. Yeah, and then they don't even check to make sure they make it back at the end of the day. Man. The Park Service kicked a major surge into gear. Five helicopters were deployed into the area where Jeff was last seen, along with 200 ground searchers and five bloodhound teams. The search continued for five days without any leads, and the dogs not picking up a scent. On Wednesday, something very unusual happened inside a national park. Gunshots were heard, along with a radio static. On August 4th, 2005, article on... The DenverChannel.com had the following details. Late Wednesday, park rangers responded to reports of gunshots heard in the area and several, fired several weapons into the air as a standard response. Another ranger in a different location reported hearing a, in, hearing a response shot a few time, minutes later. 
Rangers also reported they heard a two-way radio being keyed. The Park Service made another statement that Jeff was a capable mountaineer who had the ability to cover long distances in short periods of time. On August 6th, and just under three quarters of one air mile from where Jeff was last seen, a group of three hikers was in the area of Spectacle Lake, just below the east face of Mount Ypsilon, and found the body of Jeff Christensen. The hikers were in no way associated with the search effort. An Associated Press article on August 7th had the following statement about where Jeff was found. On Saturday, when the hikers discovered Christensen's body, searchers were focusing on an area where rangers and park visitors on Wednesday heard gunshots and radio clicks that might have come from the missing ranger. There was never an explanation of where the park service was searching. A further description of where Jeff was located was in the dailycamera.com on September 21st, 2006. On August 6th, Christensen's body was found, not by searchers, but three hikers in a large basin below Mount Chiquita. He had died of a fatal head injury, probably from a fall, on the day he went missing. But clearly, he had been alive after his accident. He had bandaged his head and hiked away from the accident site, which has never been found. His radio was in working condition, and he was in a location from which he could have radioed for help, but he mysteriously did not. Summary. The Lariamer County Coroner estimated Jeff's time of death somewhere between 6 p.m. and midnight on July 29th. I did request the coroner's report and received it 10 days later. No neck... No... No... Neck? No major injuries. Chest, no injuries. No injuries to rib or sternum. No injury to posterior torso. No gross deformities. No injuries of evidence of blunt force. Jeff did have head injuries and died of a skull fracture and an epidermal hematoma. When I originally started to research this case, I filed a Freedom of Information Act requested with... Cheris Wilson, the Denver Regional National Park Service Administrator, for organizing these filings. Over the last several years, I have filed dozens of these requests with Cheris. I understand that she is merely the messenger and not the author of the response. Several weeks after a request in the Christensen file, I received this from Cheris. The staff of Romo are estimating that it will take approximately 120 hours to search and review the files for Jeff Christensen's case, which you are also requested, because they contain privacy-related information that will need to be redacted before we can release the records. The rate per hour would be $60 per hour, so the current estimate of, to process that request comes to $7,200 and does not include any coffee costs. If you are still interested in obtaining these materials, please let me know that you are willing to pay these fees. Until we receive your confirmation, we will not be able to process your request. These motherfuckers. (laughs) That ain't how full your requests work. In the past four years, I have received two files from the National Park Service that came to me in boxes. These cases were also about missing rangers. 
Randy Morganson, and Paul Fugit. Fugit has never been found and is still an open case, yet the Park Service chose to release it. Contrary to its position on any other open cases that the agency has refused to supply, these files cost us less than $40 each to receive. Each of these incidents received national press and is still widely reported. The Christensen case is closed, and few details about what really happened have ever been widely reported. It's apparent that the Park Service does not want the intimate details of the incident reported, based on the price that was quoted. There is something seriously wrong with this incident. How could Jeff be found less than one air mile from where he was last seen, and be found in a large basin, and not be seen by ground teams and helicopters? Jeff was alive for some period of time why he didn't use, utilize his radio and call for assistance or fire his weapon to alert people that his, of, to his injury. I never did find out where in the park where the park service was searching for the gunshots and radio traffic they heard. Hearing gunshots and radio clicks in a national park is very, very odd and unusual, and happening in conjunction with the disappearance of a, a ranger makes it extremely odd. I also never found out if Jeff's gun had been fired. I did request the National Park Service report from its critical incident management team. It has been 10 weeks and I have still not received it as of publishing this book. It's troubling that the National Park Service doesn't have policies in place to ensure that someone is checking on rangers and, and ensuring they make it back from patrol every day. It's also confusing that the investigation couldn't determine where Jeff's accident occurred or if something much more unusual happened related to the gunshots and the radio traffic. I think the silence on the National Park end is they, they screwed up. Yeah. They, well, didn't, they didn't check. Yeah. And they're trying to avoid a lawsuit. I think so. I think that with a closed head wound like that, that... He probably wasn't himself completely. And probably got confused really easily, things like that. Oh, yeah. And sure. that's why he didn't use the resources that he had on him. Yeah. yeah. But, no, I think that's why that they're keeping that one quiet. I think they're just trying to avoid a lawsuit. Yeah. Yeah. If I had the seventy two hundred dollars, I would uh, send it to him so he could. Uh, so you get it. Get it. Yeah. That's one of those things that you gotta like go fund me and now he crowdsource ha- it. Mm-hmm. Now I don't know if he has a GoFundMe. I know he has a bunch of how you can donate to his cause and things like that through his website. Yeah. Do you want to do one more and we can call it? Sure. Mm-hmm. I'll do one more. Uh, give me three or give me five. Five, three or five, either one. Five, we just haven't done a lot in. Five is the sobering coincidence. Yeah, I don't know why I can't reach. That hurts. Sobering coincidence, shall we? Dwight Clark missing September 26, 2010, 2 a.m., Bellingham, Washington. Age at disappearance, just 18 years old. 
Dwight was raised in the small city of Auburn, Washington, just northeast of Tacoma. He was a very good student and an excellent communicator. He liked to keep close ties to family and friends. He was known to send up to 6,000 text messages a month and talk to his family multiple times a day. The young man had become an excellent skateboarder and had made videos of his skills and had just launched a clothing line. He was majoring in engineering and hoped to pursue his business interest. He had the brains, communication skills, and energy to be very successful. On September 25th, 2020, Dwight had been at school just two weeks when a friend invited him to his apartment for a party. The event was in the 1000 block of Indian Street, and it lasted till late into the night. Dwight walked from his room at Nash Dormitory to the apartment. At 2 a.m. on September 26, Dwight told friends that he was walking back to his room on campus, a short six-block walk. The walk would have been a fairly level stroll straight into the university on Indian Street. A downhill direction would have led into downtown Bellingham and toward the Bellingham Bay. Dwight never made it back to his dormitory, and he was reported as missing. Hundreds of volunteers, law enforcement, and relatives searched for the Auburn native. There were conflicting reports that canines couldn't find a scent, and another report that one canine followed a scent to Bellingham Bay and the area of Georgia Pacific. That area was intensively searched, and it was reported that nothing was found on the beach or in the bay. An October 7, 2010 article on ABC News had a statement from Mark Young, the Bellington police spokesperson. Quote, Clark's case was classified as a highly suspicious missing persons case, according to Young, who admitted that he was baffled by the disappearance. Unquote. Police did not conduct a search of Dwight's cell phone traffic and found... Oh, Police did conduct a search of Dwight's cell phone traffic and found a phantom text at 2.44 a.m. It was a blank message with no content. What is interesting about that message is that many missing people have one last phone or text message that is sent near the time they disappear. Some of these go to 911, and others are sent anonymously with no content. Many times this is indicative of the phone hitting the ground hard and activating the response. This was not the case with Dwight's phone, as you will learn later. On September 27th, Bellingham police detectives got the case and started to work on it. On September 29th, 35 volunteers searched the Bellingham community for Dwight. On September 30th, 50 volunteers searched Cornwall Park and Little Squalicum Beach and found nothing. On October 1st, 60 volunteers searched the neighborhoods surrounding the western campus for Dwight or his clothing. They found nothing. On October 2nd, 120 searchers covered Fairhaven Park and surrounding streets. At this point, there was a reward of $16,000 for information leading to Dwight's location. On October 6, 2010, Dwight's body was found in a lumber pond operated by Georgia Pacific in Bellingham Bay. 
This was in the same general area where a canine supposedly tracked the scent trail. The student's cell phone, student identification card, and driver's license was found on the body. The Whatcom County's coroner office did the autopsy and found a blood alcohol level of 0.13%. This would not be enough to kill anyone and probably would not have caused extreme disorientation. There was a very small amount of THC, marijuana, found in his system. Dr. Gary Goldfogel, Dr. Gary Goldfogel stated he also claimed that death was caused by drowning and was accidental. There was no trauma to the body. Nobody could say where Dwight entered the water or why. The route that Dwight would have had to take to Bellingham Bay could not have been misinterpreted as the route to his dormitory. The walk to the water would have been downhill and he probably could have seen the bay during the walk. Officials almost want us to believe that alcohol causes these young men to march like zombies into the water and continue to march into the death zone, allowing the water to go over their head, become sucked into their lungs, and die. Only one person wakes up from this zone and swims to safety. Everyone else succumbs to their drowsiness and dies. The idea that anyone could get into the bay near the Georgia Pacific property is a pretty good stretch of the imagination. The property is covered by two separate fences to ensure that nobody can get into the water from the surrounding roads or walkways. Keep your common sense hat on at this point and don't wander. These young men are not idiots. They understand that water was on the other side of the fence, and their safety was just up the hill at their dormitory. Why would anyone climb two different fences and enter 50-degree water? The, surrounding, the area surrounding Bellingham does have several missing people that I've written about in the past. Vancouver Island has a cluster of missing people, as does the Cascade Range in Washington, and the Olympic Peninsula. The University of British Columbia at Vancouver has two unusual disappearances, and British Columbia has many, many highly unusual cases of people vanishing. All of these cases have one major thing in common. They are relatively close to water in the ocean. The cases in the Cascades are generally within a 50-mile radius of the water. The Grandstrom and Clark disappearances are the most similar two cases of a small cluster that I've of a small cluster that I've ever documented. Common sense would indicate that something very, very unusual happened to these two young men. And yeah, that one the only way you, you would think anyone would even with that I I've been well drunker than that and been fine. <laughs> Okay. I've been well drunker than that and swam. Fine. <laughs> okay, but. so it looks like he's also he's referring to the disappearance of Blair Grandstrom, which happened in 1995, 15 years prior to this, but in Bellingham, Washington, as well. I just think like the only way wouldn't have been accident would have been suicide is if he climbed the fences to drown himself. 
Or yeah, that sounds like a lot of work. Like I can't help but think maybe there was some other people there, and there may have been some kind of a dare, and maybe something went wrong. Yeah. I could see an 18-year-old guy doing something stupid at that point. Yeah. His buddies were around, and then his buddies freaked out and never spoke of it again. Wow, that's weird because this other one is just like that too where he'd had to have climbed two fences to get into the water and he had a little bit more alcohol in his system but other than the... Oh, and it looks like they also lived... Whoa. Lived in the same dorm? Well, not at the same time, but yeah. The Nash Dormitory. Murder. Ghost. Murder. Yeah, and it was like a party he went that Grandstrom went to as well. Now, there's definitely a reason why the smiley face killers caught my attention. Yeah. yeah. And... These cases seem to be along those lines, too. There's something more than just drunk kids falling in a river. Yeah, and, the, and this bay is described as it's polluted with foam and dark water because it's right next to a waste treatment facility. I mean, this isn't somewhere that they're going to go and hang out and swim at, you know? Yeah. And... Somewhere there, if it's downhill from their dorm, they're gonna see it and know that that water's fucking nasty anyway. <laughs> Man, those are peculiar. I'll have to look more into that book, it's very interesting. Well, I think that's gonna do it for this missing 411's episode. 411's this missing 411 episode. Uh, be sure to like us, follow us, and all that fun stuff on Facebook, Instagram, and Discord. If you want to check out our series on the Smiley Face Killer, it is on our Patreon. Um, that was when we attempted to do Unearthing Evidence. Yep. And then we decided that we don't have enough time to do a second podcast. Yep. Oh, yeah. Especially a true crime podcast that requires a whole lot more research, research than... <laughs> yeah. Um. But there's a couple of us. There's like three episodes on the smiley face killer, yeah, I think. I think so. And then there's a couple of episodes that we did on the Uncle City bombing. Yeah. But we never finished out that series. Um, but you can check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash UMP normalcy. Or if you don't want to commit to a Patreon, you could always buy us a coffee. The link for that is in the description of the show. And that will do it for tonight. So until next time. Keep digging. Unearthing Paranormalcy is a part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. To hear more great independent productions like the one you just listened to, visit our catalog 